Pure Dog Talk is the voice of purebred dogs. We talk to the legends of the sport and give you the tips and tools to create an awesome life with your purebred dog. From showing to preservation breeding, from competitive obedience to field work, from agility to therapy dogs, and all the fun in between, your passion is our purpose. Pure Dog Talk is proudly sponsored by Trupanion, medical insurance for pets. Through good times and bad, Trupanion is here for you. The Trupanion policy helps cover the cost of unexpected accidents and illness for your pets. The Trupanion team is still available, even in lockdown, 24-7, to help your pet. They also have a program dedicated to breeders, so you can send your litters home protected. Their breeder support program provides special offers that waive the waiting periods for your buyers. It's absolutely free for you to get started. Just sign up on the link at the website, puredogtalk.com. Don't forget, mention Pure Dog Talk sent you. Welcome to Pure Dog Talk. I am your host, Laura Reeves, and I'm really excited. We have a great guest today. We have Adam Boyko, who is the co-founder and chief science officer at Embark. He started the company with his brother, Ryan. And we're going to talk really cool genetics nerddom, and I'm so excited. <laughs> we're going to talk about the FOXI3 gene. Is that correct, Adam? That's correct. And this is the gene in the dog that causes hairlessness, yes? In many breeds, yep. In many breeds. And it is connected to other genes or in itself causes also questions with dentition. It's the same mutation. So it it's, a, okay. it's a forkhead box gene that's going to be involved in what we would call ectodermal differentiation. So it's going to affect a lot of tissues that are in the ectoderm. So not just hair follicle formation, but also things like the inner ear or the sweat glands or dentition. All of these things that are related because they're coming from the same developmental tissue. Okay, mind blown. we're 30 seconds in and my mind is blown so give us a little history here tell us i mean we know we nailed down the canine genome we did all this stuff when and how did you identify or isolate this particular gene right so the canine genome was first sequenced in 2004 2005 so we have a reference genome now from tasha the boxer Right. And this was a big, like, $25 million project. And you guys worked on that, right? Some of my colleagues worked on it. This was before okay. I got into dog genetics. I was okay. graduating from Purdue with a degree in biology, but I was studying butterflies at the time. So I didn't join the dog field until after we had a genome, and then I switched okay. because there's so much more cool stuff you can do with an organism that has a genome, and particularly with dogs. Yes. And now the butterflies have a genome, but I'm, <laughs> I'm wed to dogs at the moment. Dogs are cooler than butterflies. There's a dog genome. And so I started working with some projects with some collaborators, and we found the gene for prick ears versus floppy ears, which was really cool, as well as a lot of the genes that control body size in dogs. So a neat thing about dogs, unlike people, is generally you can have a single gene that causes big differences in the phenotype. So with dogs, you can look at six genes, and you can predict 70 to 80% of the difference in body size in dogs. Fascinating. You have some genes that have a really big effect on body size. Mm -hmm. In humans, you don't have any gene that does that. 
you could identify hundreds of genes that have small effects and maybe cumulatively it predicts like 15% of the difference in body size in people. Interesting. You can find single mutations that you can point to this mutation and say, oh, a dog with this mutation is going to have folded ears and a dog with this mutation is going to have prick ears or a dog with this mutation is going to have long fur or a dog with that mutation is going to have short fur. Okay. And so researchers doing that then in 2008 were able to identify the gene that's different between dogs that are hairless and dogs that are this FOXI3 gene. And so it was a matter of, okay, you look across the genome, what's the part of the genome that's shared by dogs that have this hairless phenotype? And then let's sequence across that and find the mutation in that region that is probably causing the phenotype. And the mutation itself is just this insertion of seven base pairs. So remember the genome is like two and a half billion base pairs. And you have these seven base pairs that get duplicated in this dog. And it totally throws off then as the gene is getting transcribed and the proteins being made, it's just, it's broken. It doesn't work. And so that little mutation then is the difference between whether the dog has hair or doesn't. Right. And were you able, working with other scientists, to determine where that mutation started or why or how? Yeah, so one interesting thing, so one of the projects I started on with dogs, it wasn't this hairless project, but it was what we call the Village Dog Project. Yes. And so my brother and I like went around the world and we got collaborators to send us samples from dogs from around the world because we thought a lot of people were studying purebred dogs, which is great, but most of the dogs in the world aren't purebred dogs and they're not even mixed breed dogs the way you and I think of mixed breed dogs, but they're actually natural populations of dogs that have been around for thousands of years and probably have some really interesting biology. And if you look at village dogs across the new world, you do occasionally come across dogs that carry this mutation and have the hairless phenotype. And if you look at dogs that have a very, very similar sequence, so that the same genetic background, but don't have the mutation. So like these are the closest relatives for where the mutation occurred for dogs that don't have the mutation. It's actually like Alaskan Huskies and other Northern dogs like that, that are very puffy, puffy dogs but they have DNA still in them that pre-Columbian Native American dogs had. So that strong, like genetically you get the signature that this is a mutation that arose in the new world before European contact. And this is the basis for Mexican hairlessness. Right. So the Zolos, the Peruvian Inca orchids. Right. As well as the Chinese crested. So it's the same mutation in Chinese crested. Okay. And so the fascinating piece to me and this is where you're, <laughs> you're the smart person that's going to tell us, in cresteds, for example, we'll use cresteds because I know a little bit about this much. They breed what they call powder puffs, so that's dogs right. with hair and dogs without hair. And my understanding is that is in order to maintain the dentition. Is that correct? You actually don't have a choice. You're always going to get powder puff oh. dogs. You get powder puff Zolos as well Yes, in Peruvian Incan orchids. And the reason for that is this mutation is actually lethal. If you have two copies of this mutation, a dog with two copies of the mutation dies in utero. Hmm. So every hairless dog has one copy of the broken FOXI3 gene and one good copy of the FOXI3 gene. Interesting. And so when you cross two of them, if you draw a Punnett square, it's going to be one quarter get two copies, one quarter get zero copies, and half of them get one copy. And so that half that gets one copy is going to be hairless. 
And then that quarter that gets zero copies is going to be powder puff. And then the other quarter that gets two copies, they never happen. They're not even born. They're absorbed. So the litter is going to be a two to one ratio of hairless to powder puff when you cross two hairless dogs. Right? If you cross a hairless to a powder puff, right. then the ratio is going to be one to one. Half of them are going to get the hairless gene and half of them are. Fascinating. So the powder puff have better dentition, right? So this Foxi 3 mutation not only affects the development of hair follicles and interrupts them throughout most of the body. They still have hair on the tip of their head and the tip of their tail. And there's some variation in that. And some of it's developmental. Some of it might be there's modifier genetic loci. But the dentition is also affected. So the teeth, you know, both the deciduous teeth and the permanent teeth, generally you don't see as many developed. They're not as well formed. They tend to be more conical than to have the regular dog ridge patterns. Mm -hmm. Uh, A lot of times they're a little more tusk-like. They point out a bit more. These are all kind of developmental defects. But the powder puff doesn't have those defects, not because it has a better FOXI3 gene that you want to breed in. It's just, it doesn't have any It doesn't have the broken one. Broken one. Okay. All right. Very, very, very interesting. And so you mentioned when we started discussing this particular gene, some of the other developmental defects that come with it. Is this something that you see in hairless breeds as health conditions or concerns, or how does that fall into the category of what you guys are able at Embark to look for or any of that sort of thing? Yeah, so I'm not a hairless dog breeder. So I don't know for a fact, you know, it would not be surprising if there are differences in like sweat gland formation. Dogs don't really use sweating to keep cool as much. Right, just their feet. I mean, you do see, you know, a lot of times you'll get some acne in the hairless Mm -hmm. dogs Mm -hmm. and whether that has to do with gland formation or whether it's just because the glands are more likely to get clogged up if you don't have hair or something. Right, right. I'm not sure. There are definitely other kinds of ectodermal dysplasia, like X-linked ectodermal dysplasia. So it's not a breed-defining hairlessness, but it's an X-linked. So generally males get this defect. And you can see that in several different breeds like Labradors. That gene's a lot better studied. And so we do know that, so dogs generally have sweat glands on the paws, but these dogs, so that's broken. And they also tend to have ear defects sometimes, which is also common to what you see in X-linked ectodermal dysplasia in people. Interesting. And when you do mouse studies, in mice, the scientists can do genetic manipulation. And so you can knock out a FOXI3 gene. And of course, then the mice, again, aren't going to be viable if they have two copies of this. But you can actually study the embryological process. Mm-hmm. And you can see that, yeah, the inner ear doesn't develop and other sorts of sensory organs don't develop. So there's lots of potential things that could go wrong. But obviously, hairless dogs can certainly live to a ripe old age. Right. They seem to be great companions. Healthy. You have to take certain cares of them that you don't have to for other dogs in terms of, you know, you have to watch out for sunburn a lot more. Right. You know, you have to probably keep the skin a little bit better moisturized and and maybe put a thermal regulation might be a little bit more difficult in some climates. Well, and I'm very excited that we're going to be able to pair your conversation with a conversation with some Sholo breeders next week. Yeah. So I'm super excited to kind of delve more into that piece of it. Yeah, they're going to be the real experts in the care kind of stuff. Exactly. Hang tight, guys. Got a little bit of information for you. We'll be right back to the podcast in a minute. All right, folks. 2020 has, to put it mildly, presented some challenges for all of us. You know, the good news, 
Our patrons' numbers are still growing, almost daily. I truly, truly cannot thank all of you enough for your support. It's been overwhelming. And for those of you who've had to reassess your budgets, please know, I totally get it. And I will always be grateful for your belief in this program and the power of great content. Like the NPR of dogdom, Pure Dog Talk is here for you every day to make sense out of everyday things, to add nuance to your understanding and tools to your tech box, to bring history to life and propel the living history of purebred dogs into the future. Our patrons make all of this possible. The funds are specifically designated only for overhead. They literally keep the MP3s rolling. Meanwhile, the patrons-only After Dark Facebook Live and Zoom meetings each month truly have been a fabulous success. Conversation, support, laughter, some education, some mentorship, lots of encouragement, and even, randomly, the occasional adult beverage. So click the link at www.puredogtalk.com and become a patron today. Your small contribution helps make a huge voice for purebred dogs. So on the genetic piece, again, I just go back to, I mean, evolution, this particular mutation had to evolve for a purpose. Do we have any sense of that? Well, I think ultimately the purpose is that people really like unique and distinctive dogs. And so you have this mutation which has a dominant effect. So as soon as it arose, that dog was hairless. This isn't like a recessive defect that you have to wait around a while for it to get paired up with. And it arose in an environment where people thought that this was a sacred dog or a dog that they wanted to have around. And it very quickly became popular. And it was, you know, sacred in certain cultures. Mm -hmm. It's argued that it was useful as almost like a heating pad at night so it can transfer the heat. Right. I mean, the band Three Dog Night, that's because yeah. <laughs> when it's cold out, you want three dogs in the bed that you need to keep warm. And if they're hairless dogs, they can maybe keep you warm better. And they're valued now because many people find them hypoallergenic. Right. So you have much less dandruff. You have much less hair. I mean, they still have saliva. So you can't say they're completely allergy-free, but lots of people that can't tolerate other dogs can tolerate these hairless varieties. And so curiosity, and I don't know if you guys have looked at this or not, but I just did an interview with a gal who's breeding Chongqing dogs, basically a very, very ancient Chinese breed that has a strip of hairlessness down its back, sort of, not really, just really thin hair. So talk to me about the genetic. Is that like a partially masked or what do we call that? Yeah, so I don't know the specifics about the genetics of that dog. We haven't really analyzed yeah, them curious, right? genetically. I would assume that that's going to be a little bit more related to the mutation for Ridgeback. Oh, interesting. So you're reorienting the hair fibers on that dermoid region of the coat. And that's actually next door on chromosome 18. So this fox I3 is on chromosome 17, and then the other one's on chromosome 18. So Okay, so there's the hairless gene that's right here, and then right next to it is the one that gives you ridgebacks and tie ridgebacks and some of those things. Yes, yes. So it's the same mutation in Rhodesian ridgebacks, tie ridgebacks, yep. Fascinating. Totally fascinating. And I've interviewed a number of ridgeback people. I show a lot of ridgebacks. And it's fascinating when you talk to them because they talk about the fact that the ridge 
is something that's so important to the breed. They thought maybe it was a better hunter or whatever it was that twinned with that gene. I mean, it certainly could be the case that the founders of the breed that had the ridge were really good hunters. But it's sort of strange credulity that a lot of these breed-defining characteristics like big Dalmatian spots or ridgeback Mm -hmm. or things like that actually had a particular functional thing other than to make the breed distinctive and people really kind of glom onto it. I mean, I know just about enough to be terribly dangerous. This is why I talk to people like you. But I love looking at when you're breeding dogs, you're looking at the genes that seem to go together. So do you guys have any research on, you know, you always are going to see these two genes, like the hunting gene and the something else gene that go together, or the good front gene always goes with the bad hair gene. I don't know. I mean, (laughs) yeah, so there are some times when you see linked variation. We don't know much at all about the genetics of behavior in dogs, So we don't know whether there's true genetic linkage between any traits and behavior. It'd be surprising if there wasn't any, but probably most of it is just kind of anecdotal and not really like truly these genes always co-occur together. But in some functional morphological traits, so the gene for folded ears is right next door to one of the important body size genes. Oh, interesting. And we have other situations where genes that are important in coat traits are also next door to genes that are important in skull morphology and things like that. Okay, so we're talking about the next door part, and we're envisioning this long chain of stuff. Right, because DNA comes in chromosomes. Right, exactly. You're inheriting large chains of DNA from each parent. It's not that you're randomly throwing genes at a dartboard. Exactly. And so I'm curious about now the placement on that long chain. Does that chain break somewhere? Like, is it important that I have, you know, for me to get patches versus ticking or something like that in my breed? Yep. Where do those things break? Do they break? How do they break? So every dog has 39 pairs of chromosomes, just like every person has 23 Mm -hmm. pairs of chromosomes. Mm -hmm. And your mother's 39 chromosomes, 39 of them came from her father and 39 of them came from her mother. Mm-hmm. But when you inherit one of your mom's chromosomes, so the chromosome one you got from mom is not identical to the chromosome one she got from her mom right. or the chromosome one she got from her dad because right. there's this process called recombination. So that chromosome one gets broken a couple times, not completely shuffled. It's not like shuffling a deck of cards. But there's going to be a stretch that came from grandpa and then a stretch that came from grandma and then a stretch that came from grandpa. And so everything on the same stretch is coming from the same molecule that got inherited from the same ancestor. But there are going to be these occasional breaks. And so the closer together two genes are on the chromosome, the more likely you're going to co-inherit. They go together. You know, whatever variants are on that from that individual. And so the classic case in dogs actually is this Dalmatian spotting, which is on chromosome three. So you have this region of chromosome three, which makes the big spots in Dalmatians versus kind of like the tiny flecking or whatever you'll see in other breeds. And right next to that is this gene that has a defect in Dalmatians that leads to HUU. So all Dalmatians are at risk for kind of bladder stones and they need to be fed special diets. Right. And it couldn't get bred out because when the breeder selected for the big spots, this other bad mutation kind of hitched a ride along because it was right next to it on the chromosome. 
excellent description. I love that. And so we're going to have more opportunities to talk, I'm sure, in the coming months as we work on this partnership. But I am never going to turn down an opportunity to pick somebody's brain like this. (laughs) Okay, great. I'm glad it was useful. No, this is fabulous. So we've got the FOXI3. So that's a particular type of mutation. Give us some examples of other genes that are mutations that we see expressed in our dogs. Well, so another great example is that this FOXI3 mutation doesn't explain all of dog hairlessness. So as I mentioned, there's an X-linked form of hairlessness, but there's also American hairless terriers, right? which have a different form of hairlessness. They're actually born with hair follicles, but then they bald out. Okay. And they have a defect in a different gene. I think it's SGK3, which is on chromosome 29, which is involved in hair follicle development. So they start out through development fine, but then they don't mature the hair follicles. So they lose their peach fuzz and they never get their real hair in. And that's a recessive mutation. Versus the FOXI3 that's a dominant mutation. Which is a dominant one. So with FOXI3, you never have homozygous FOXI3 mutants. So it never completely breeds true. You're always going to have powder puffs. With American hairless terriers, it always breeds true. If you breed one hairless dog to another one, they're going to create a hairless litter. And you don't have the same dental defects or anything like that associated with it. It's, It's strictly the hair. And you don't have the problems with the ones that die in utero because they have two copies of the bad gene. That's right. Or broken gene. So you still have the one-to-one ratio if you cross uh, hairless with uh, heterozygote, mm-hmm. which would be a hair dog, but that's the only similarity. I think they call them, do they call them coded? They call them coded shows. I guess they, yeah, I guess they do. I think they call them coded hairless terriers. I don't know. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I don't know. They're great dogs. They are. They're very cute. I actually had traveled with a gal that showed American hairless terriers, and it is definitely a fun little breed. I mean, just do-do-do. Happy little dogs. And such a recent addition. Mm-hmm, exactly. And, Which know, is why I think this is also decades. fascinating is when you look at the mutations that happen. So talk about, we got a little bit on the why they continue to develop the Fox I3, but can you speak to, or do you have any scientific basis to speak about the why, why that gene broke in the first place? I mean, the gene broke just from a normal mutational mechanism. So everybody has mutations that have occurred. So when you're born, you have, depending on how old your dad was when you were born, because that's primarily where most of the mutations seem to come from, you know, 50 to 200 mutations that aren't in either one of your parents. So they just arose from errors in DNA replication. And the FOXI3 gene was particularly prone for this kind of error because it's the highly repetitive GC region. When the sequence looks very, very similar, it's easy as you replicate it for the DNA strand to kind of slip because it still kind of matches. And then it'll fill itself in. And so you just have the seven base pairs of Gs and Cs that match this whole longer stretch of Gs and Cs. But it really screws up the code, right? Like this is actually a coded message. And when you insert seven base pairs into this coded message, it throws off the whole reading frame and everything, you know, like the gene just doesn't work anymore. Whereas other kinds of errors, you know, if you just have a single point mutation, you know, sometimes that can be a big difference. So like there's a single point mutation in FGF5. That's the difference between long-coded dogs and short-coded dogs. Right. But other times, many, many single base, you know, point mutations have no effect at all, even when they occur in genes. 
Okay. So gene mutations happen accidentally. They happen randomly. And then they are perpetuated because they serve a purpose evolutionarily. Yeah, so that's <laughs> right. So because dogs are domesticated and people can selectively breed them and selectively protect them and provision them and everything, you'll get mutations like this that really would disappear rather quickly if it happened in a wild population. Like if you had a hairless wolf right. that didn't have good teeth. It wouldn't last long. It's not going to survive to adulthood and reproduce. So it's not that this mutation probably never occurred in another organism, but dogs, because they weren't hunting on their own, and because some people really want distinctive-looking dogs, and because we also can think, oh, well, this hairless dog will be useful if Mm -hmm. I'm worried about allergies or if I want a dog that's going to be in my bed and I don't want, you know, like you can come up with all sorts of post hoc reasons, but basically... We bred dogs to be extremely phenotypically diverse because we really value unique dogs and what they can do. And that they are predictably so. And they're predictably so, right. We can breed them to breed true. Yeah. Right, right. So the best hunting dog to the best hunting dog to the best hunting dog, that was literally a matter of life and death or the best herding dog. Same way with sled dogs. Yep. Yep. Same way with livestock guardian dogs. Yep. All that. Excellent. Well, this is absolutely fascinating, and I have enjoyed it tremendously. And I'm looking forward to talking to you about more stuff. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, me too. This is great. Yeah, it's very good. So next time we'll talk about, I don't know, I haven't decided yet, but I'm excited. (laughs) I'm always happy to talk about dogs, especially genetics. It's the best. It's the best. All right. Well, Adam, thank you so much, honey. I sure appreciate your time. Thanks, Laura. As always, if you have any questions or input, we'd love to hear from you. The show notes and links to resources on today's topic are available at puredogtalk.com. Drop us a note in the comments or email to laura at puredogtalk.com. Remember, guys, this podcast is for you. So if you want to know something, give me a holler. We'll do a podcast for you. If you wouldn't mind, you could help me out here. Take a couple minutes to visit iTunes and give us a review. The Dog Show Superintendents Association is a proud supporter of Pure Dog Talk. Our Dog Show Superintendents are the hardworking people who make the dog show function. They are advocates for education and mentorship in the purebred dog fancy. So stop by the Supers Desk at your next show. Tell them how much you love Pure Dog Talk and give them a shout out for their support. That's all for today. Thank you for joining us on Pure Dog Talk.